Welcome to Lessons for Living Television. I'm Bill Santos. Thank you so much for watching. Is it possible that what we are seeing in the media and what we are internalizing as beautiful or normal is anything but normal or beautiful? It's actually fake. The question is posed by doctors Lindsay and Lexi Kite on their website, beautyredefined.net. They say, it's a profit-driven idea of normal and beautiful that women will spend their lives trying to achieve and men will spend their lives trying to find. But until we all learn to recognize and reject these harmful messages about what it means to look like a woman, we all lose. Well, this situation has become so serious that the American Medical Association announced that they have developed a policy against false advertising, the American Medical Association. The AMA adopted a new policy to encourage advertising associations to work with public and private sector organizations concerned with child and adolescent health to develop guidelines for advertisements, especially those appearing in teen-oriented publications that will discourage the altering of photographs in a manner that could promote unrealistic expectations of appropriate body image. We must stop exposing impressionable children and teenagers to advertisements portraying models with body types only attainable with the help of photo editing software. Uh, Hani Farid, professor of computer science at Dartmouth College, in his 2011 TED Talk asks the question, what's a picture worth? Uh, he then goes on to explain that what you and I see in a photograph is not always what it appears to be. It's a fascinating TED Talk. Speaking on what Photoshop has done to our definition of beauty, or even real, he says, the more and more we use this editing, the higher and higher the bar goes. They're creating things that are physically impossible. We're seeing really radical digital plastic surgery. Now, digital manipulation is the foundation of the fashion and beauty industry where airbrushed and digitally enhanced portrayals of ideal male and female beauty promote standards of attractiveness that are impossible to achieve. A number of years ago, the National Capital Commission, a crown corporation responsible for planning and developing Canada's national capital region, caused some controversy when they published a promotional brochure for the city of Ottawa that featured a digitally enhanced photo on its cover. The brochure blended a view of Parliament Hill from one end of the Rideau Canal with the more picturesque section of the world's longest skating rink. Well, even the section of the canal they selected was inverted in order to create a more symmetrical image. At issue wasn't that the NCC had used a compilation of photos, but rather they had presented this image as the real Ottawa scene. 
According to the Telegraph newspaper, McDonald's uses Photoshop to touch up their menu burgers. The article states that McDonald's has disclosed how its most popular products look, their tastiest and best for advertising shoots and campaigns is done with Photoshop. The article's author, Andrew Huff, stated, in a video posted online, it showed how technicians, photographers, and McDonald's executives spend hours ensuring the products are presented with absolute precision. It lifts the lid on a McDonald's photo shoot that shows how they shrink cheese and shade the buns using Photoshop. The subsequent tell-all video has become a viral hit, having been viewed more than two million times since it was uploaded on YouTube. The candid approach, part of a project launched by its Canadian operations to increase transparency, has surprised some retail observers who noted the move could disclose some of its most sought-after trade secrets. The video was posted after a young customer asked, why does your food look different in the advertising than what's in the store? In response to the question from an Isabel M. from Toronto, Hope Bagazi, McDonald Canada's Director of Marketing, proceeds over the three-and-a-half-minute YouTube video to explain how this is done. Advances in digital technology mean that anyone with a computer and image manipulation software can easily cut and paste a wide range of images into an apparently seamless whole. The old advertising slogan, is it live or is it Memorex, takes on a whole new meaning when trying to separate truth from fabrication in photos, well, that appear real. Pranksters and even journalists are proving that more often than not, we can't believe everything we see. This combination of pictures of two images from the Korean news agency shows a limousine with a portrait of late Korean, North Korean leader Kim Jong-il leading his funeral procession in Pyongyang. In the top picture released by Kyoto, a group of men clustered around what looks like a video camera is seen on the left side of the picture. But in the bottom picture, the one that was sent to Reuters, the group is missing. Reuters now believes that this picture was altered. The reason for the apparent photo alteration is unclear, although the doctored image appears slightly tidier than the original. In 2010, BP came under fire over a photoshopped image of its Gulf Coast oil spill command center, which indicated that staff were busier than they actually were. The oil company acknowledged that it posted on its website an altered photo that exaggerated the level of activity at the center in Houston. The picture shows workers monitoring a bank of 10 giant video screens displaying underwater images of that uh, oil leak. However, a spokesman for BP admitted that two screens were actually blank in the original picture and a staff photographer had used Photoshop software to add images. In June 2010, 
it was discovered that a photograph of Winston Churchill giving his famous victory salute had been airbrushed to remove his signature cigar. In a reproduction of the picture hanging over the main entrance to the Winston Churchill Britain at War Experience Museum, he was made into a non-smoker through the use of image-altering techniques. And finally, this combination of six pictures released by the United States National Archives shows altered headshots of Adolf Hitler. The Office of Strategic Services had asked Eddie Sens, a New York makeup artist, to clone the portrait of the German leader after D-Day on June 6, 1944, because they feared Hitler would flee from Germany in disguise. When the Holy Spirit portrays heroes found in scriptures, he is a very realistic artist. The Holy Spirit paints people just as they are, without airbrushing their faults or brightening their dark sides. No touch-ups to make them seem better or worse than they really are. The Bible presents the truth, just the truth, and nothing but the truth. The Holy Spirit records some dark incidents in the lives of many biblical characters to warn you and I of the destructive power of sin, even in those that love the Lord. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Well, once again this week, I'd like to invite you to go with me back into an analysis of a particular event in the life of David. And I think this event provides us with one of the most powerful insights into our salvation in the entire Bible record. Our story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 2. David and his men have just returned from a series of victories over the Philistines. In this climate of victory, once again, David is vulnerable to sin. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of them. David commands Joab to take a census of the people. Now, there's nothing evil about taking a census. The Lord himself had ordered Moses to count the people at the beginning and at the end of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But what motivated David was not obedience to God, but pride in his own power. You see, by counting the people, he was calculating the potential strength of his army and, in effect, slighting the faithfulness of God as the shield of Israel. Now, Joab was a hardened and unscrupulous general, but even he could see that the taking of such a census was out of keeping with the fundamental principles of the Hebrew monarchy. 
by a number of questions, he endeavored to cause David to recognize the folly of his course. Look at verse 3. Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? David was nonetheless determined, verse 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. This provides us with an interesting glimpse into the personal life of David at this time. You notice there is no record of him seeking the guidance of God on this decision, nor does he call on one of God's prophets for counsel. He simply decided that it was to be done, and it was done. It also seems to suggest to me that David feels that he is accountable to no one for his decisions. Joab's question goes unanswered, and David proceeds as if the query had not even been raised. See, there was more going on here than pro that provoked David's decision. If you go back to verse 1 of the same chapter, 24, we read this. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Ambition for worldly greatness and a desire to be like the other nations had arisen with this sense of pride came the decreasing sense of the solemn destiny to which that nation had been called. Filled with thoughts of pride and self-sufficiency, David was led to take his census in Israel. Now, God permitted David's corrupt motive to be translated into action. When the Lord allows the counsel of evil to take its way, it's often set forth as if this were by the active intervention of God, although it's actually the force of evil that is at work producing these destructive results. But what Satan had planned for evil, God would use for good. Satan had expected the divine judgment to crush David, but God would use this event to refine him. And the sword of justice that Satan had hoped would destroy the nation, God would use to demonstrate his mercy to the world. Unfortunately, those in authority are not always right. But it's their word that prevails. Joab was right, and King David was wrong, but David was the king. And so it's with a heavy heart that Job obeyed David's ill-advised command to count the people. The task took Joab and his men more than nine months. And finally, with their books lined with rows of numbers, they returned to the king with the results. Verse 9. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Any king would have been elated over these figures, but as the census was underway, 
David begins to rethink the implication of what he had done and begins to realize that he's made a mistake. Verse 10. David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. You see, the Spirit of God was speaking to him and was showing him the folly of his course. And in deep humility, he confesses again his mistake before God and asks for forgiveness. I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted very foolishly, he says in verse 10, the last part. You see, the mark of a person after God's own heart is a sensitivity to sin and a willingness to seek restoration with God, even if it means facing God's judgment. First Chronicles 21, verses 9 through 12. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else... Three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Well, this is a rather unusual offer that the Lord set before David. Sin invited judgment, yes. But David here was given the opportunity to choose well, what that judgment would actually be. What a dilemma David finds himself in. He cries out to the prophet, I am in great distress. Well, David chose the third option. He would rather his case rest with God than with men. God's judgment was swift and terrible. It says, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. But equally swift was God's mercy. Verse 15. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Well, when David saw the angel of the Lord wielding his sword over Jerusalem, David took upon himself the responsibility for the command that the census be taken. He frankly confessed his sins. He assumes the blame for the present calamity. And God heard his prayer, accepted his confession, forgave his sin, and evil was stayed. God could have ordered that the angel bring down his sword on David's neck. Instead, God gave another message through the prophet Gad. At the site where God's judgment and mercy met, David was to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The spot where the angel halted 
was on a place called Mount Moriah. It was a piece of property owned by Ornan the Jebusite. It was on a hill. It overlooked the city of David. It was on this hill where Abraham had erected an altar for the offering of Isaac and where God had appeared to him and the angel had restrained Abraham's hand from plunging the knife into his son. It was here that God had provided a lamb as a substitute for the sacrifice. It was here that Solomon would later erect his temple. Renewed with hope, David hurries to see Ornan, verse 22. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan was willing to make every possible sacrifice on his part that the plague might be stayed. He generously offered not only the property, but the oxen for the sacrifice and the wood for the fire and the wheat for the grain offering. David refused the gift. It was only right that David would purchase the threshing floor for money and not accept it as a gift. Well, the Lord honored David's zeal. And when David built the altar and called to the Lord for mercy, a blast of fire answered from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. God's holy wrath was appeased. Verse 27. The Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. Trembling and worshiping at the foot of that smoking altar, David understood God's grace more clearly than at any other time in his life. And the story ends with David making a very solemn vow. Chapter 22, verse 1. This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is the place, David is saying, where God's judgment and God's mercy will meet for generations to come. This is the place where sins will be atoned for and where pardon will be bestowed. To this holy mountain, the world would come to find mercy and hope and salvation. For here, Solomon would build the temple of the Lord. David learned many never-to-be-forgotten lessons that day, lessons about the devastation of sin, the holiness of God, the hope of the altar, the need for grace. But he also learned that nobody, no matter how old, no matter how wise, no matter how respected, is immune to sin. What a vivid picture of God's plan to save a fallen humanity. The story of David's life provides one of the most dramatic pictures of salvation in the Bible. The angel of the Lord appears with his terrible sword of justice drawn ready to strike the condemned. But between the angel and the sinner is an altar. And on the altar is a sacrifice. A humble prayer is spoken. The sky unleashes a thunderbolt of fire, the wrath of God that consumes not the sinner, but the sacrifice. 
Justice served. The angel sheathes his sword and the sinners are set free. Upon this hill of mercy, known as Mount Moriah, the foundation is laid for the temple and its sacrifices as well as the redemption of the world. You see, because you and I, we are condemned sinners standing beneath the angel's blade on a hill called Mount Calvary. The altar is the cross. The sacrifice is Christ. Paul fits these pieces together in his definitive statement of salvation truth found in Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see, Christ's sacrifice frees you and me from God's wrath. So why do so many so often live in fear of God's wrath? Christ's death covers all of our sins, even the ones that have left a trail of destruction in their path. How long are you and I prepared to condemn ourselves for sins that God has already forgiven? God has sheathed his sword. Maybe it's time for us to put ours away too. It's true. You and I will never outgrow sin altogether, but by God's grace, we can learn to hate it more deeply and see it less frequently in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today with grateful hearts, grateful for what Jesus did for us on Calvary. Wash away all our sins as promised and give us the power to resist temptation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a special gift for our viewers, we'd like to offer you a Bible study course. It is an excellent course, a great way to really solidify your knowledge of God's Word. Uh, it can be delivered to you online or by correspondence. It's free of charge. There's no obligation on your part whatsoever. If you are interested in beginning that course, Here's the information you need to get your first lesson. To receive today's free offer, you can log on to the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. You can also write us at Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. You can also order this offer by calling 1-800-972-0337. Let me thank you for joining us. And uh, I hope you'll be back again next time. I want to remind you before we go of the website, l4ltv.com, all of the programs are available for viewing on the website and for sharing with your friends and with your family. Remember to visit our Facebook page and like us. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, at Santos underscore Bill. If you're in the Toronto area, every Saturday morning, 
10 o'clock, I'm at my church, the Harmony Church, and then 11.30 for uh, worship service, 10 o'clock for Bible study. Visit the website for directions and times and locations as to where I will be appearing live. Hope you'll do that. Until we meet next time, I'm going to ask that God bless you. Stay well. We'll see you again real soon.